Good morning, Highland. It's great to see everyone here this morning. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer before we jump into our text this morning. Father, we are so grateful to be here on this kind of cold and snowy October morning, but we're not going to let that get in the way of us worshiping you and being excited to hear from your word this morning. So, Father, we just pray as we dive into this text uh, that we are able just to see your truth, that your spirit is able to move in us. And as we study your inspired and errant word, you give us uh, just those truths that we need to hold dearly to transform our, our lives and our minds and our hearts to look more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so two weeks ago, I encountered a pretty provocative headline as I was reading through the Washington Post. Okay, so here's the headline that I read. Progressive seminary students offered a confession to plants. How do we think about sins against nature? Now, this headline isn't supposed to be comedic or satirical at all. It's dead serious. And the rest of the story outlines what happened at this seminary as they had a chapel service, a worship service, where seminary students came in and had this uh, opportunity to confess their sins to plants. So as I read through the rest of the article, it was kind of surprising. So let me just kind of give you a recap of what this article said. Two weeks ago at Union Theological Seminary, a progressive and liberal seminary right in the heart of New York City, hosted a special chapel service that was oriented around uh, confessing their sins to plants. So as aspiring church leaders, as these young seminarians enter into the chapel space, they were greeted by a centerpiece of soil and rocks and potted plants. I think we have a picture of it right here. That's what the middle of the chapel looked like. So as they go in, they see this assortment of plants, and then they completed what the seminary spokesperson called a sacred, beautiful ritual. On their Twitter account, Union summarized their worship time by saying this, Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, our joy, our regret, hope, and guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering our prayers to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we far too often fail to honor. And then the tweet ends with an emphatic question for all of us. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Well, if I have to answer that honestly, nothing. Okay, so we have a lot of plants at our house. Megan and I love plants, but she's yet to find me bowing down and confessing my sins to our aloe plant in the family room. That just doesn't happen on a regular basis, right? But that's what they're asking there. Uh, that's what this chapel service is all around. And, and uh, naturally, they received a lot of backlash from the Christian community for all of these things. So they sent out some more tweets trying to clarify their position. But sadly, those were even more bizarre and unorthodox. So here's kind of their justification of what happened. They said it's important to note that this really isn't a radical break from tradition. Many faiths and denominations have liturgy through which we express and try to atone for the sin, the harm we've caused. No one would have blinked if our chapel featured students apologizing to each other. What's different and the source of so much derision is that we are treating plants as fully created beings. Usually that word in theological circles is reserved for someone that has the Imago Dei created in the image of God. And then it says as divine creation in its own right. Creation with a capital C. Divine capital C creation. Not something just to be consumed. Because plants aren't capable of verbal response, does that mean that we shouldn't engage with them? That's what future church leaders 
were learning and worshiping in their chapel service. They were learning to confess their sin to plants and nature, which apparently at this seminary is divine. Now, I want to start before I dive into this a little bit more by making a clarification. I am in no way saying that Christians should not be concerned with the health and care of the environment. I'm not saying that at all. If we go all the way back to Genesis 1, chapter 20 and 7, 28, from the very moment that God created Adam and Eve, he gave humanity the immensely important job of being the caretakers of his creation. We are called to steward creation in such a way that it produces flourishing. So we absolutely should care about being good caretakers of God's created universe. But notice that's not what's going on in this chapel service. They are confusing the creation with the creator. Instead of worshiping the creator, they are obviously spending time worshiping the creation. This isn't Christianity. This is really just a version of of pantheism. Pantheism is an age-old heretical belief that overemphasizes the eminence of God. So as Christians, we would say God is omnipresent. God's presence is everywhere. Pantheism would take that another step further and say, really, God is everything. All of us kind of together, all of creation, we compose God. It's kind of how many of you have ever seen a Star Wars movie, right? It's kind of, that, that's really, pantheism is the theology of Star Wars. God is the force, and the force is in everything, and it's good and bad, all, all these different things. And that's really pantheism. And that's essentially what they're saying here. Did you notice some of the pantheistic verbiage that they used? First, notice who they were confessing their sins to and asking for forgiveness and atonement. Plants. They're asking plants to atone and forgive them for the sins that they committed. But the psalmist says in Psalm 51 against who? God, you and you only have I sinned. Second, notice that creation was spelled with a capital C. They weren't saying that creation was something that God created, but rather they were saying creation is the same as the creator. It's divine because it possesses the nature of God. And then lastly, Notice who the article says we should be praying to for sustenance. Plants. They said plants are the beings that ultimately sustain us. Now, who ultimately sustains us? God, right? God does. And God sustains us through giving us good gifts, but we can't ever confuse the gift with the giver, the creation with the creator. Union Theological Seminary apparently believes that we should pray the section of uh, give us this day our daily bread to the wheat fields of Kansas, right? But that's not what we should do as Christians. Ultimately, we know that's for God and he sustains us through his good gifts. We cannot confuse the gifts with the giver. Now, we might be tempted to chuckle at this article a little bit. It's a little different. It's a little strange, but it's not a laughing matter. Because this article highlights the precarious situation that American Christianity increasingly finds itself in. Because the reality is, every single day, we are in a place where we are facing the decision of whether we are going to give in to the wisdom, the advice, the priorities and teaching of this world, or we are going to stand firm in the truth, the priorities, and the teaching of Scripture. This seminary is desperately trying to force their scripture and their theology to fit in with the teaching and the wisdom and the agenda of our culture. They're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, but God says that can't really happen. You have to be completely in Christ. That's our only option. The wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God's word are not 
compatible sources of wisdom. And that's what Paul's going to warn us against this morning. He says, you cannot be deceived thinking that godly wisdom and worldly wisdom are just two complementary sources of wisdom that you can simultaneously hold. They are absolutely opposed. So that's what he is getting after today. So why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first nine verses this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give a little context to the passage. As Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, time and time again, he's confronting a dangerous fixation that the Corinthian church has on just being infatuated with the teaching and the wisdom of their secular culture. And because of that, they were being tossed around in their faith regularly. Because they had such a preoccupation of listening to the best-selling authors and listening to the advice of the world, it was leading them into immorality, it was leading them into disunity, and it was leading them into disobedience against Christ. So Paul comes in and he says, listen, you can't have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. You need to get serious about giving every region, every aspect of your lives over to God's wisdom. So that's a little bit of the background. So let's look at verses 1 through 9. Here's what Paul says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory." None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. As we read through this passage, there should have been one word that was repeated six times that kind of jumped out at you. What, what's, the, what's the main idea? What's the word that Paul is emphasizing in this passage? Wisdom right? Wisdom. That's the theme of this entire didactic unit of Paul's letter. He's talking about wisdom. And if we were to boil down the big idea of this passage to one sentence, I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying we need to understand that godly wisdom and worldly wisdom are foes, not friends. Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom are foes, not friends. They are contradictory approaches to how to discern truth. And that was an important message for these young believers because these young believers were being tossed around in their faith like a pontoon boat in the middle of a powerful hurricane. Their obedience to Jesus was wavering because they were looking to the wisdom of this world as their source of truth, as their source of, a t- of teaching, authority, and morality. Uh, they wanted to have, as I said, one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. They were what I sometimes refer to as they were trying to be chameleon Christians. They could kind of blend in in whatever circumstances and surroundings they found themselves in. If they were in the church, they looked like a church member. If they were in the world, they looked like a world, worldly person. They could just try to blend in. But Paul says, no, you cannot do that. You have to have a full commitment to Christ. And you know, that message should resonate deeply with us as well. 
because we increasingly live in a culture where the larger Christian community is falling into the same dangers. More and more every single year, we see Christ followers succumb to the wisdom of the world. We see Christ followers get in this place where they're looking at the wisdom and the teaching and the morality of the world, and they're looking at the wisdom and the teaching and the morality of God's word and saying, can we just try to integrate the two? Can I have one foot in the culture and one foot in Christ and make that work? There's a lot of Christians who are slowly compromising the truth claims of Scripture in order to accommodate our culture's beliefs and values. There's a war going on against the wisdom of God's word, and we need to make sure that we do not allow ourselves to compromise God's truth in order to fit in and be accepted by our culture. You know, less than two years ago, Barna Research Group put together a study asking the question, how many people that profess to be a Christian actually hold a Christian worldview? How many of them actually hold a biblical worldview? And here's the parameters for what they meant by holding a biblical worldview. It's all tier one issues we should agree on. Here's what they said. This is what it means to be, have a Christian worldview. Believing that absolute moral truth exists that the Bible was totally accurate in the principles it teaches, that Satan is a real being or force, not merely symbolic, that a person cannot enter their way into heaven by trying to be good or doing good works, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Those are the parameters. How many professing Christians do you think held a Christian worldview? What do you think? Come on, what do you think? Give me a number. 17%. 17%. Less than one out of five Christians that they interviewed held a Christian worldview, meaning four out of five people have allowed the wisdom of the world to subvert God's wisdom and truth in critical areas of the Christian life. This text is absolutely vital for today's church. As Christ followers, we have to be on guard against the false teaching and philosophies of the world that are trying to penetrate our biblical worldview and corrupt it. But how do we guard ourselves? How do we fight against this? Well, that's what we're going to seek to answer today in this text. We're going to see three things that godly wisdom prioritizes. Three ways that we can defend ourselves against the war of wisdoms that we encounter. Here's a little preview of what, we, what we'll be going into, and then we'll jump into the first point. We're going to see that godly wisdom prioritizes substance over style, we're going to see that godly wisdom prioritizes truth over trendy. And we're going to see that godly wisdom prioritizes revelation over speculation. So let's jump into our first point. Point number one, right down this way. Godly wisdom prioritizes substance over style. Meaning the substance, the content of one's message over the style of one's delivery. Look at verse one again. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians, when I first came to Corinth, when I was evangelizing, when I was trying to plant a church, he said, I didn't come with an agenda of trying to impress you with my fancy language, with my lofty words, with my complex syntax. He says, my goal when I first came was not to show you how impressive I was. He says, no, the focus wasn't the style of my delivery, but instead, he says, my focus was the substance of my message. And what was the substance of his message? It was the testimony of God. It was Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Now, why is Paul making that point? When I first read through this passage, I thought, Paul, you're just weird. This is just a strange passage. Are you saying that it's bad to be an engaging speaker? Is Paul saying that it's bad to use rhetorical devices and be entertaining? Is he, is he saying that you have to have boring, dry sermons? Is that what's in store for Highland for the next decade? No, I, I don't think that's what Paul's getting after here. If you read Paul's letters, he's a master of rhetoric. He's a master of using, engaging ways to write his letters. That, that's not what he's saying. Paul is more saying, no, 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 you can't be focused just on the style of one person's delivery and that be your basis of truth. He says, you can't focus on who's just the most engaging speaker and say, well, I'm going to follow them. He says, you've got to consider the content, the substance of their message. In a very real way, Paul is uh, drawing kind of a line in the sand to distance himself from the other big-name teachers and readers and sophists of the first-century Greek world. Uh, a sophist was something that was very common in the first-century Greek world that was pretty much just a, a paid mouthpiece. This was someone that was a philosopher for hire. You could pay them, and they would go and try to convince the crowd of their teaching. That, that's what was going on. And the way that the Greek culture measured whether or not a message was true was how loud the applause was after a speaker got up there and talked. That's really how they measured truth. They were always looking for the next trendy, exciting message. The truthfulness of a person's message was measured by their rhetorical skill and polish, by the complexity of their vocabulary, by the commanding stage presence of the teacher. But just imagine how dangerous it is if those are the criteria of what you are viewing as true teaching. Just think back to the 20th century. There were some pretty amazing speakers who committed some pretty incredible atrocities because they were persuasive, enough to persuade an entire nation into a political sphere called Nazism and do com committed horrible atrocities because there's a difference between being a a gifted rhetorical speaker, and a person of true substance and truth to one's message. So Paul comes in and he says that's foolish if you're basing your truth off of the style of a person's delivery over the substance of what they teach. And that's really what the Corinthian audience was doing. All they cared about was how well a speaker could deploy kind of the, the three different facets of Aristotle's persuasive argumentation, right? So three words, three words, ethos, pathos and logos. How many have heard those words before? Anyone heard that before? Probably heard it at some point. Even if you haven't heard those words, you see them all the time because it's still the three ways that advertisers and commercials try to convince you of their message. We see it all the time. The first one is ethos. It's trying to use enlisting a kind of an A-lister to support a product to get you to buy it. So it goes this way. How many of you have seen some of the uh, State Farm commercials that feature Aaron Rodgers? How many have seen some of those, right? Here's my question. Does Aaron Rodgers know dilly squat about insurance? Probably not. I'm guessing that he does not have his master's in accounting or insurance, right? That's, a, that's probably not Aaron Rodgers' forte. I'm just, I'm just speculating. Why is Aaron Rodgers in a uh, commercial like that? Why is he championing an insurance company? Because... They know that Wisconsin people like Aaron Rodgers. And now you're more tempted to use their insurance. You got a big name to give a thumbs up. And now I think, wow, if Aaron Rodgers trusts them, so do I. Right? That, that's essentially what they're trying to do. That's ethos. Trying to use a name to convince you of something. 
The, the next one is pathos. That's trying to tap into your emotions to make you feel something to believe it's true. So what this looks like is when years ago you see this commercial come up and there's the sad puppies and the crying kittens. And then Sarah McLaughlin starts singing, and the arms of the angel fly away. And they say, for $100 a month, you can save the crying puppies, right? Like the idea is they're trying to make you reach for your wallet because you're crying and say, I got to save the puppies, right? They're trying to play on your emotions. That, that's, that is pathos. And then logos is the idea of just trying to convince you with a, a, a sneaky argument or just appeal to your logic. So think about this way. Think of AT&T, think of Verizon, and think of Sprint. All of them will show you a map at the end that shows why their coverage is better than the other person's. Each one's a different map, but they're trying to convince you that they've got the best cell phone coverage, right? So they, they kind of make a, a straw man argument of the other companies and say, here's why we are so much better, right? That's all the Greek culture cared about. How well a person could use ethos, pathos, and logos. Can you make me feel something? Can, can you seem believable? Can you give me a straw man argument of why you, your position is better? And Paul comes in and says, style is no substitute for substance. When Paul comes in, he says, I didn't want to merely persuade people to be Christ followers because I was a silver-tongued speaker. He said, I didn't want to come in and persuade people to be Christians because I emotionally manipulated them. He says, I, I don't want people to become Christians just because they really like Paul. He says, no, no. Paul's greatest fear is making disciples of Paul and make, instead of making disciples of Jesus. And Paul gets up there and in his mind he says, if a person were to come to me afterwards after a service and say, Paul, you were an amazing preacher. That was an amazing sermon. I've utterly failed because I want people to walk away saying, you serve an amazing Lord, right? Paul says, the spotlight is not on me. And so many other teachers, all they cared about was building fame, building applause for themselves. And Paul says, I don't care if I'm the pastor of a mega church. I don't care if I'm the celebrity pastor. I just want to glorify Christ. Paul came to proclaim the testimony of God, the gospel of Jesus and him crucified. Why was that his focus? Because Paul knew that only the gospel has the power to transform a person into a new creation. Paul understood that it's only through teaching the truth that the Holy Spirit can begin to cultivate a person's heart to lead them to repentance and faith. Paul understood a vital truth that every preacher of the gospel needs to understand. It's not our sermons. It's not our analogies. It's not our sophisticated delivery of a sermon that ever produces repentance and faith within a person's heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit as we rightly exposit the word of truth. It's not my skill or style that saves anyone. It's Jesus and the power of the cross and the Holy Spirit that saves people. So Paul's saying preachers and teachers must prioritize the substance of their message over the style of their delivery. Preachers have to care more about pointing people to Jesus than pointing people to themselves. Preachers need to care more about equipping people than entertaining people. Preachers need to prioritize expositing the truth over sharing pithy platitudes. And preachers need to remember that we don't save anybody. We're just a vessel in the hands of the Redeemer. So what does this mean for us? If godly wisdom truly prioritizes substance over style, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, I've got two words of application for us. First of all, that should give us hope as we seek to evangelize and disciple other people. You know, I think there's so many people who are afraid to share their faith or afraid to invest spiritually in other people because they think, I don't have the style. <laughs> 
I've never learned the the tools. I'm not near as well-spoken as this person. God could never use me. I can't do it. But notice what Paul said in this passage. I think it's in verse 4. He says, I was fearful. I was trembling. I didn't come in strength. Paul says, I was humble and prayerful. And God was able to use my humble and prayerful words. The same is true in our life. I think a couple years ago, I was in a group and I heard a young adult sharing and evangelizing with another young adult who's not a believer. And as, as I was listening in on this conversation, I thought, oh, that's not good. <laughs> I was thinking, that, that, oh man, I wouldn't have said it that way. Ah, no, go to this passage instead. And all in my mind, I was thinking about how I, you know, how I would have navigated that conversation. And at the end, I just had to kind of repent of my pride because then there was this young man who was not a Christian who looked and said, that's the first time that's ever made sense to me. No one else has ever shared the gospel that made sense before. And I thought, how did that make sense to you? Right? But the spirit was working in his heart because it's not style, it's the substance. It should give us a humble boldness to share our faith with others. But a second point, it should give us a different filter for how we evaluate what is a good spiritual book, what is a good sermon, and what is a good devotional. Now more than ever, I hear Christians say, man, I, I just love this pastor because he's so engaging. He's so good at speaking. Ah, oh, he just really makes me feel good at the end. That is a terrible criteria to evaluate who your favorite pastor and author should be. It's not about the style of their delivery. It's not about how well they entertain you. It's about how well we are equipped for the ministry of the saints. So if you have a pastor that's entertaining, but they never open up their Bibles and they don't show you from Scripture what they are saying, why they're saying what they're saying, they have no right to speak authoritatively to us. We have derived authority from God's word, not authority in the speaker themselves. So that's our first point. We need to prioritize substance over style. But here's our second point in verses 2 and 5. Godly wisdom prioritizes truth over being trendy. It prioritizes truth over being trendy. Paul says when he arrived at the Corinthian church, notice what he preached. He said, I preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul comes in, he says, when I came, I wasn't holding any punches back. I came preaching gospel-centered sermons. That's a really important thing because we have to remember the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that was not trendy in the first century Greek culture. If anything, it was very offensive and affront to what they believed because the gospel was totally out of step with what they understood a God would be like. Remember what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness, stupidity to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. And there were idea of theology, there would never be a God who would endure the humiliation of crucifixion. Gods were powerful. Gods were these prideful beings. And their mind, having a a savior that would come and humble himself and take on the form of a man and die a death on the cross, that's not a true God. And Paul knew that that would be a message that would be out of step with their culture. And when he first came in, I'm guessing he probably felt the temptation to kind of leave out some of the aspects of the gospel that might not be so trendy in the culture. Instead of preaching about the crucifixion, Paul said, Paul might have been tempted to say, no, 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 let's think about how powerful Jesus is. He could speak and calm the storms. He could, you know, let's just talk about the, the power of Jesus or let's talk about God's love. He was going into Corinth. 
one of the most immoral cities in the world at this time. And Paul could have gone in and said, you know, maybe I shouldn't preach about repentance. <laughs> maybe I should just talk to them about the, the good things that come from following Jesus, the, the benefits of being a Christian. I can just leave out that turn away from sin repentance piece. But Paul didn't do that. Paul said, I know that it might not be accepted by the culture, but I'm refusing to compromise the truth in order to be popular and accepted by the culture. Thankfully, Paul prioritized truth over being trendy and popular. He stood on truth no matter how unpopular or reviled it might have been. Paul understands that we as Christ followers need to fear God more than we fear man. Because when we care more about being trendy and popular than sharing God's truth, we stop being useful and effective for God's purposes. I think of Luke 8, 16, where Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but they put it on a stand so that those who enter might see the light. The idea is we are supposed to be lights in a dark and ever darkening world, lights of truth. But my fear is there's a lot of Christians with their hands on the dimmer switch. As the culture continues to get darker, we just kind of dim our light as well and say, well, how can I kind of straddle the line between culture and, and Christ? We see this type of compromise all the time. We see a lot of Christians that when the world says, we don't really like this about what you teach, there's a lot of Christians that say, well, maybe we can just kind of change what we believe a little bit to make it more palatable and acceptable. There's a lot of Christians that are willing to compromise truth in order to stay trendy. The world right now says, you know, a loving God would never send people to a literal hell. We don't like that. So there's some Christians that say, you know what, maybe, maybe hell's not literal. Maybe like it, it, you just kind of cease to exist after you die, or maybe it's just metaphorical. There's not a literal hell that God would never send people there. There's a lot of people who say, I don't like the idea that Jesus alone is the way to eternal life. Why aren't other religions good enough? And there's some Christians that say, you know, yeah, Christianity is the true way, but Jesus, you know, yeah, there's many paths that ultimately lead to God. If you're just sincere in your beliefs, religious pluralism comes in and, and everybody can make it to God as long as you're sincere in your faith. There's some people that say, you know, the reason that, that how could there be a loving God and yet sin in the world? And there's Christians that come in and say, you know, maybe it's because God didn't know that sin was going to happen. Maybe it's because God wasn't powerful enough to keep sin from happening. Maybe God is just kind of learning and he's surprised as, as we are. There's some people that say, how in the world could you ever say that such and such and these things are morally wrong? What gives you the right? And we come in and say, you know, God is love and God kind of wants us to be happy. So you can just cut out those pieces of the Bible that talk about a, a holy lifestyle. God really just wants us to be happy and fulfilled. That, that's really it. Going back to our opening illustration, there's people that say, well, you know, why, why, what, what is going on with, why, why do we have to worship just one God? Why isn't he here with us? And they say, oh, maybe, maybe God's uh, pantheism, maybe God's in creation, and, and God uh, is in creation as well. There's, there's so many ways where people are tempted to compromise the truth in order for Christianity to remain trendy. But Paul says that's not an option for Christ followers. We don't get to choose what parts of Scripture we want to be true. We don't get to choose what parts of Scripture we want to believe. If God's declared it to be true, we have no right, we have no right to argue with it or compromise it. We have to battle that temptation to prioritize being trendy over, over truthful. So how do we apply that to our lives? Well, first, that means we need to be studiers of the truth. We can't know what the truth is if we're not studying the truth. There are a lot of Christians who are very lethargic and anemic in their spiritual intake. 
There's a lot of people who never read God's Word, let alone any other books on apologetics or uh, uh, theology or other disciplines of the Christian life. We need to make sure that we're regularly studying God's Word and building up and storing away the truth in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. I think a second one as well is we need to make sure that we are helping the young people of our church be prepared for the the barrage of assaults they're going to receive in high school, in college, and just in the world that we live in saying, if you believe the Bible, you're ignorant, you're foolish, you're bigoted, you're all these different things. We need to help our young people understand that it's more important to fear God than fear man. We need to prioritize bringing our families to Sunday school. We need to make sure that we're equipping them for the ministry of the saints. We want to make sure that we are investing in the spiritual growth of especially the young people in our church. So that's point number two. We need to prioritize truth over trendy. But point number three, as we look at the last few verses, godly wisdom prioritizes revelation over speculation. Look, at, look again at verses six through nine. Paul says, we do impart wisdom to the mature, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed he revealed now. He decreed it before the ages for our glory. Paul has just spent a lot of time bashing the wisdom of this world. But Paul comes in and Paul says, I'm not anti-wisdom. He says, you just have to know the right wisdom to listen to. He says, you need to make sure to listen to God's revelation over human speculation. Paul says, you can know wisdom. You can know truth. I know the source of real wisdom and real truth. Paul says, I bring a superior wisdom that wasn't thought up by mankind. This is a divinely revealed wisdom directly from the ultimate source of wisdom from God himself. And notice the defining difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. It's all about the source. It's all about the source of the wisdom. What's the source of the wisdom of this world? It says here, it's the rulers of this age. And what Paul is saying is the source of worldly wisdom is human speculation It's people that say, we don't want to accept the belief that there's a God that needs to reveal things to us. We can just make up our own truth. We can discern truth for ourselves through our human intellect and our own desires. So it's the idea that says we reject God's revelation. We reject that we need God to rightly discern ourselves, our our, our universe, or God himself. We can figure all these things out for ourselves. And as they do that, that's the worldview that's that's built around that worldly wisdom. But contrast that with the source of godly wisdom. It's God himself. God says here that he has revealed these things to us through his special revelation, through the revelation of his word, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through the revelation of, as we're going to see next week, the spirit working in our hearts. And the idea that God needed to reveal wisdom to us teaches us something, doesn't it? It teaches us that we're not going to stumble into truth without God's help. We can't rightly discern truth through our own broken faculties. That's what this passage is saying. Well, why is that? Two reasons. First, God created us to need instruction. God created us to need his directions. He's the creator. That's how he designed it. But the second thing, what happened the moment that Adam and Eve chose to sin? Their foolish hearts were darkened, according to Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. In that moment, 
we lost our ability to rightly navigate truth. If we try to follow the compass that's inside all of us, a compass is only good if it points north. And the Bible tells us we have broken compasses. They don't point north anymore. They point wherever our sinful desires want. Instead of pointing to God, they point to self. Instead of pointing to worship, they point to idolatry. Instead of pointing to truth, they point to lies. We need someone to come into the brokenness, reveal the light, and show us the way back to the light. And that's what God's revelation does. God finds us in our brokenness. He finds us in our darkness. And he illuminates the path back to life. We need God's wisdom because on our own, we'd never find our way out of the darkness. In this passage, Paul says why the world will never quite understand the wisdom of God's word. He says that we only impart the secret hidden wisdom to the mature, to the mature. He said if the world would have understood it, they never would have crucified Jesus. And the mature there means someone who has a spiritual relationship with God. The idea is if God hasn't done that convicting work. Unless our minds have been sanctified and renewed in the blood of Christ, they're never going to see the truth and the need and the necessity of God's word in their lives. So really the question we need to ask is this. Who would you rather trust for truth? Mankind's broken, finite understandings and speculations of the universe or God who's omniscient, the creator, all wise, and his direct revelation to us? Which is the more reliable source of truth? So what that means for us when the world says, you know what? Morality and truth are relative. We have to stand up and say morality and truth are absolutes given to us by God. When the world says people are essentially good at heart, we have to say, no, people are essentially broken and depraved by sin. When the world says there's no such thing as a spiritual realm, we as Christians know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We have a real spiritual enemy who walks around like a lion seeking someone to devour When the world says freedom of expression is the only path to fulfillment, we recognize that death to self is the only path to fulfillment. When the world says that naturalism or evolution is the only intellectual way to explain the origins of the universe, we say no, the necessity of a creator is the only way to explain the origins of the universe. We have to stand firm on God's revealed truth. You know what my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this passage is? Notice that when he talks about this truth, Paul says that this is a wisdom that was decreed before the ages for our glory. God's revelation, God's truth, God's prescription for life. It's not meant to be shackles that enslave us to misery. No, it says that God created this for our glory, for our satisfaction, for our sanctification, for our eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's wisdom is the only way to lead to a fulfilled and satisfied life. There's a war of wisdoms going on in our culture, our churches, and our own hearts. And we can't be content to try to straddle the line between culture and Christ. We need to plant both feet firmly in Christ alone. 17% of Christians have a Christian worldview. Let's make sure that statistic is not true of Highland Community Church. Let's make sure that we're 100%. Let's close in word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of this passage. We're so grateful that in the darkness of this world and the brokenness of our own hearts and our own minds, you came and showed us the way back to truth and the way back to you. Father, we need you. We can't do this on our own. We can't 
rightly navigate this life apart from your truth. So, Father, I just pray that we live out Romans 12, that we are regularly having our minds transformed by, the renewing, uh, by renewing them in your, in your word. So, Father, we just pray that you apply this to our hearts and our lives, that you help us to better glorify you by understanding this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.